So I want to talk to you about depression tonight. I want to talk to you about depression tonight because Elijah, sort of the main figure in our story tonight, is a very depressed man. Life is not panning out uh, the way that he thought it would. Here is a man who feels like a failure. He's just quit his job and let go of the one employee that he had. More than that, he's not just ready to quit his job, right? He's ready to call it quits on everything, right? To take his own life. All the signs of uh, depression, all the key signs of depression, feeling sad, lost, hopeless, angry, change in appetite, change in sleep, fatigue, feelings of worthlessness, self-reproach, guilt, suicidal thoughts and actions. Elijah exhibits them all in chapter 19. A colleague of mine uh, named Sammy Rhodes, who's a, he's the RUF campus minister at USC, that's the University of South Carolina, uh, he has written a very funny and helpful uh, book um, in which he talks about his own struggles with anxiety and depression. This is the book right here. It's called This is Awkward. I highly recommend it to you. On page 71, Sammy writes, the reality is that at some point in our lives, everyone gets depressed. You might struggle with clinical depression that comes and goes in frustrating and unpredictable ways. If not, you will at some point wrestle with circumstantial depression. Life will disappoint you, even devastate you. The natural human's response is to get depressed about it, maybe put on a little bonnie vare and some sweatpants, then curl into a ball for a few days or weeks. You know, in his book, uh, Sammy stresses the importance of talking about depression, and he also explains why that conversation around depression can feel so awkward. He writes, and I quote, talking about depression is difficult because we have different ideas about why we get depressed in the first place. Whenever we start talking about depression, we're typically talking about three different aspects, the spiritual, the emotional, and the physical. And to only deal with one of those elements is to reduce depression into something that can be easily managed, and it's not easily managed. But when we take all three aspects seriously, what that means is that there can be no simplistic answers. Okay, depression is a multifaceted problem, and it requires a multifaceted sort of holistic approach. Right, some of our depression is rooted in our spirituality. It has spiritual roots. If you murder and cheat and steal and have sex with strangers, you're probably going to feel pretty lousy. God made you in this world to work a certain way. You could say there's a grain to the universe, and when you go with the grain, it's smooth. Right? But when you go against the grain, splinters. Right? It hurts. All that is to say, some depression is the consequence of our sinful choices. And the quickest solution is to repent. Okay? To turn around. That is what the word repentance means. Right? To turn around. To change course. To go a different direction. If you're going against the grain, to repent means to go with it again, right? The spiritual roots of depression go beyond our sin, though. What we believe about God affects us in profound ways. Does God exist? 
Is he good? Can he take care of me? Does he want to take care of me? Right? How you answer those questions makes a profound difference. For example, if you believe that there is no God, that we are here by accident, that there is no objective right or wrong, that all morality is culturally and historically relative, that there is no life beyond the grave, no heaven, no hell, no justice, no hope, that's depressing, right? That's depressing. Life in a godless universe is depressing. And all of the counseling in the world and all of the psychotropic drugs and pills that you might take will not be able to heal that. It won't be able to heal your hopelessness. Some of our depression is spiritual in nature. Spiritual problems requiring spiritual solutions. Repentance, prayer, faith, the gospel. But not all of our depression has spiritual roots or underpinnings. Some depression is caused by circumstances or certain situations. Y'all, we live in a broken, right, fallen world. Life in this world is not the way it's supposed to be. We sin, but we also get sinned against. Parents get divorced. Right? You lose a friend. That means the world to you. You do the right thing, but you get fired for it. Your boyfriend or your girlfriend cheats on you. You thought things were going to go this way, but they end up going that. Things don't go uh, according to plan. Well, when we experience and encounter the brokenness of this world, and we all do experience it differently, right? Though in myriad ways, sometimes we get depressed. Right, to deal with this dimension of depression, right, the circumstantial depression, we don't need to repent and we don't need a pill. We need counseling. We need a good counselor. We need someone who will sit there and listen to us and ask good questions. In my own experience, I found that the best counselors aren't the ones who dispense great advice, they're the ones who really listen well and who ask really great questions. Those are the best kinds. Thirdly, some of our depression has physical or physiological roots. If my kidneys can get sick, well, then my brain can get sick too. If my kidneys can get sick, so can the glands that control my hormones. You know... Granted, not all depression is rooted in our physiology or biochemistry, but some is, right? Some is. And what that means is that medicine may be as helpful as both repentance and counseling. Antidepressants are not a magic bullet, but when physiology or biochemistry is what's driving that depression, they can be unbelievably helpful. The Bible teaches that we are not just bodies, we're not just matter, and we're not just spirits. Right? We are embodied souls. We're embodied souls. There is a unity between our bodies and our spirit. 
And what that means is that what we do with our soul affects our body, and what we do with our body affects our souls. For example, pent-up anger or stress will manifest itself in your body as an ulcer. Something that starts off sort of spiritual, all of a sudden becomes bodily. If you eat junk food and you don't sleep, you're going to feel like crap. Right? When you ask yourself, did I eat that box of donuts and binge watch Netflix because I'm depressed? Or am I depressed because I ate a box of donuts and binge watch Netflix? <laughs> the answer is yes. Right? While the solution to your depression might be repentance, it might be prayer, it might include counseling, it might include meds, it might also just come down to what you need is a really good meal and a good night's rest and a nice walk outside. What's the point? Well, the point is that depression is a multidimensional problem, okay, and it requires a multifaceted solution. We are being reductionistic. If we say the only, th- the only thing uh, that you need to do when you're depressed is to pray, that's reductionistic, right? But you're also being reductionistic if you say all you need is counseling or all you need is this pill. Our depression may be mainly rooted in one of these dimensions, right? The spiritual or the circumstantial or the physical, physiological, but rarely is it solely rooted uh, in one of these things, which means we as people, right? need a, a holistic approach when we encounter depression in our lives or in the lives of our friends. What I want you to see tonight is how God engages with Elijah, how he deals with his depression. I want you to see him meet Elijah and treat him holistically, because he does. I also want you to see that God meets him where he is at. Okay, God does not say, To Elijah, hey, get your act together, and then we can talk. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, hey, buddy, um, I only help those who help themselves. He doesn't say that. On the contrary, right? God meets him in the deepest, darkest pit of his life, and he walks him out of there. And this really is the main point uh, of tonight's sermon. You know, if you walk out of here remembering nothing but this, you're going to be okay. God loves us enough to meet us where we are at. And God loves us enough not to leave us there. That really is the point. God loves us enough to meet us where we are at. And God loves us enough not to leave us there. Let's see how this applies, right, to Elijah and his situation. And for that, a little context is helpful. Okay, we just kind of parachuted into chapter 19 tonight. There's a lot that happened right before it, even just in the chapter before. And I want to just give you a little bit of context. Who's Elijah? Who are these people, Ahab and Jezebel, who are saying they want to kill him? You know, why is he running for his life? Well, Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. And a prophet essentially is a lawyer for God. Prophet is someone who represents God's case, right, and represents his clients before the people. And God had a very strong case against the people of Israel, and especially its leadership, Ahab and Jezebel. 
Israel had had some pretty bad kings in his time, but the Bible says these two, right, were hands down the worst. They were the worst. They were murderous, they were idolatrous, and they were unjust. They killed everybody who opposed them, right, who had the guts to speak up against them. They erected altars and false gods all throughout the kingdom, golden calves uh, in worship of Baal, giant phalluses in uh, worship of Asherah. And then they said to the people, you need to worship these gods like we do. Okay? Not only that, right, they robbed the poor, killed the poor, stole their property, and filled any courtroom with lies and fraud. They were the worst. So God calls up Elijah to call out the abuse, to call out the injustice, and to argue God's case right, against these leaders and all of those who follow them. Well, things come to a head in chapter 18. Okay, Elijah rolls into the capital city, and he like, pushes the, uh, the doorbell on the palace. Ahaz aunt, uh, opens the door. He's a little startled to see Elijah because Elijah is like Israel's most wanted. And he says to him, I'm not the criminal here, Ahab. You are. You and your father's house are guilty because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. But let's settle this once and for all. Okay, let's, let's settle this once and for all. Gather all of Israel. Meet me at Mount Carmel. Bring your dream team. Right? The 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of, uh, of Asherah who eat at your di- dinner table every night. Meet me. We're going to have a little showdown. Virtue Field, 9 p.m., right? It's on. You know, if you thought the, uh, the Mayweather-McGregor fight was a big deal, all right, this is even bigger than that. Like, this really was the contest of the century. Everybody shows up. Everybody's tuning in. Ahaz shows up with 450 prophets of Baal, right, in one corner. And then the other corner is just Elijah all by himself. Elijah steps to the center and he grabs the mic and he says, How long, Israel, will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord, Yahweh, is God, well then follow him. But if Baal is the Lord, well then follow him. He then spells out the terms of this contest. He says, Let's have two bowls be given to us. Team Baal can have first dibs. I'll take the other one. Butcher the bull, put it on some firewood, but don't light it. And I'll do the same. I'll butcher a bull, I'll put it on some firewood, I'm not going to light it. You can go first. Call upon your gods and see if they can set fire to this bull barbecue. Then it's my turn to call upon my god to light up right, this bull barbecue. Whoever's god sets the bull aflame is the one true god, an undisputed champion of the world. Right? Sound like a plan? Everybody's like, that's a great idea. That sounds perfectly fair. So the prophets of Baal go first. All morning long they cry out, O Baal, answer us. But the Bible says there was no voice and no one answered. And this goes on and on for hours. Around lunchtime, Elijah starts trash talking. He says, cry aloud for he's a God. Maybe he's off meditating somewhere. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's asleep and needs to be woken up. Or maybe he's taking a dump and doesn't want to be bothered. And I'm not kidding, that's in the Bible. All right? <laughs> Team Bale starts getting desperate. 
Okay, they start pulling out every trick in the religious uh, playbook, even going so far as to mutilate themselves. Okay? And this goes on well past noon. But still, no one answers. Not so much of a whisper. Right? Not a flicker of response. Nothing. Radio silence. Finally, Elijah steps forward and says, okay, enough is enough. Everybody, look over here and listen. And he goes and he picks up 12 stones, each stone representing uh, a tribe of Israel, and he makes an altar. He puts some firewood on the altar, and he puts the bull on top. And then he digs a trench around the altar, a giant trench. And he calls out to some water boy, hey, come and fill four buckets of water and drench the ox and the firewood and the altar, everything, with water. And the water boy does it. Elijah says, do it again. Water boy comes and he does it again. He says, no, do it again. So he fills up some buckets and he drenches everything, right? The, the, the water, the wood, everything, or the, the wood, the bull, everything with water. He says, do it one more time. Do it four times. So he goes and he fetches water and he drenches it again. The thing is sopping wet, right? Elijah then prays, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God and that you are giving these people a chance to turn their hearts back to you. And as soon as he says the words, Amen, fire from God falls from the earth or falls from the sky and flames completely consume the bull, the wood, the stones, the dirt, and even the water and the trench. It is all burned up. When this happens, the crowd is completely taken back. They fall to their knees and they worship. The Lord, he is God. Right? Yahweh, he is God. But the night's not over. Elijah says, grab those guys. And the crowd, which is then a mob, grabs them and they take them down the river and they kill all the prophets of Baal. All of this happens in chapter 18. It's a pretty dramatic chapter. So when we read in chapter 19, in verse 1, that Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. This is what Ahab is talking about. This is what has just happened. And here's what Elijah thinks is going to happen next. And this is significant. Okay, this is important. Elijah thinks, in light of what has just happened on Virtue Field, they're going to rally the troops, and the people are going to fall in line behind them. They're going to march onto the capital city, And Ahab and Jezebel, having lost this contest and being shown that their gods are really no gods at all, are either going to repent, they're going to resign, or they're going to be impeached. But either way, there's going to be change in Washington, right? But that's not what happens at all. There is no repentance. There is no resignation. There is no coup d'etat. Instead of ducking out of Dodge, Ahab and Jezebel double down on their death threats. Things do not go the way that Elijah had planned. The way things pan out are not the ways that he imagined them going. 
Right? Life is not going the way Elijah wanted it to go. He feels like the rug was pulled out from underneath him. And he gets depressed. As one friend of mine would put it, Elijah is riding high. Like he's riding high in chapter 18. But in chapter 19, he comes crashing down. He gave it at all, and he expected it to work. And he expected it to work a certain way. But when it didn't, he quit. He tried. But it seems like it failed. He's depressed. This brings us, okay, to God's response. Okay? Remember, God loves us enough to meet us where we are at. And he loves us enough not to leave us there. Like God loves us enough to meet us where we're, at, where we're at, but he also loves us enough not to leave us there. You know, the last time God showed up was in chapter 18, sending fire down from heaven. The next time God shows up is right here in chapter 19. God meets Elijah where he's at. Elijah is afraid and he is exhausted. He feels like a failure and he wants to die. So what does God do? He cooks him some food. He literally bakes him a cake. And he tells him, you need to get some rest. He doesn't just do this once. He does this two times. Here's some food. Get some rest. He doesn't give him a lecture. He doesn't give him a Bible study. He doesn't counsel him. He meets his most immediate physical needs first. Right? God deals with the physical dimension, right, of Elijah's depression. And he does that first of all. God gives comfort. Secondly, God gives counsel. And God gives counsel. With some food in his belly and having caught some Z's, Elijah heads to Mount Horeb. You might not know it by that name, but Mount Horeb is also Mount Sinai. Okay, it's the place where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Elijah's going to a place where he thinks he can, he expects that he will certainly encounter God, Mount Sinai. He's still depressed, okay, but his depression is coming off now as anger. Once he made his case for God, right, serving sort of like as his lawyer, well, now he's making his case against God. Look at verse 10. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken the covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. In other words... My program was perfect, so what gives, right? I did everything just right, but you, where were you? I, I alone am the one who's doing anything around here. I'm the only one left. I'm busting my balls over here, and then no, nothing seems to be working. <laughs> Sorry, but that's kind of how, like seriously, that's kind of how it comes across. I'm busting my balls, right? Depression is a strange thing, right? 
It's not, as you might think, uh, thinking too less of yourself, but rather depression is often thinking about yourself too much. It's not necessarily thinking about yourself too, too less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself too much. It's a preoccupation with self. All the depressed person can think about is him or herself. And listen to Elijah. Right? I have been very jealous for the Lord. I, even I only, am left. I'm the only one doing anything. I, 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 me, 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 me. You know, in a fascinating article in Psychology Today, it's reported that, and I quote, from a variety of phobic anxiety and obsessive compulsive impairments, to many depressive, dis- to many depressive disturbances, including bipolar disorder, self-absorption can be seen as playing a major, if not a dominant role. Right? The point is, is that self-obsession, self, um, uh, what's the word, self-absorption, right, is a major part of depression. You can't, you can't get beyond uh, yourself. In order to be healed of this, right, you need to um, move away from self-centered and self-defeating uh, tendencies. How does God meet Elijah in this? How does God meet Elijah where he is at? Well, he meets him this time, doesn't he, as a counselor, asking good questions. Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? God is not asking this question because he doesn't know the answer. God is not asking this question to get information. Right? God is asking this question to force reflection. To get Elijah to step back and to see some bigger picture. To get, a, to get outside of himself. Wait a second. The last time I prayed to God, he answered my prayer. He showed up in a powerful way. Why am I afraid? Why am I running? What am I doing here? Part of this counseling session, you know, in reorienting Elijah, uh, refreshing his perspective, and God, involves God passing by this mountain. You have more drama, right? A hurricane, an earthquake, fire. But no, God is not in the hurricane. And God is not in the earthquake. And God is not in the fire. God comes to Elijah in a whisper. Elijah can shout at him all he wants, but God is not going to shout back. He's going to answer him in a whisper. Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Why are you running? You'll like a good counselor. He helps Elijah address some of the circumstantial or situational dimensions right, of his depression. What brought you to this place? Finally, God comes as a king. He comes as a comforter, first of all. He comes as a counselor, second of all. But thirdly, he comes as a king, as one who is in control. He asked a second time, what are you doing here? Elijah responds again, word for word, 
I have been very jealous for the Lord. I, even I only, am left, etc. Right? He's still angry. He's still depressed. Spiritually speaking, he needs some correction. This time, God does not relate to him as a comforter or as a counselor, but as the one in control, as king, as the sovereign over Elijah's life, still in charge. Go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel and Jehu and Elisha. In other words, Elijah... I'm still in control. I'm still in charge. Now I want you to go and do something. You still have a job to do. God is not just in control of Elijah. Okay, He's in control of the entire situation. In fact, he's in control of history. He knows, if you a careful, slow read of this passage will reveal, right? He knows how things are going to pan out. He knows what's going to happen. Haziel's going to do this. Jehu's going to do that. Elisha is going to do this. Right? He knows how things are going to pan out, and he's working behind the scenes to make sure they pan out the way that he wants them to. Right? He's correcting Elijah's thinking. You're not the only one working for me. You are not the only one. In fact, there are 7,000 other people on my payroll right, who have not bowed the, their knee or kissed Baal. 7,000 others, Elijah. You're not alone. Not only does he remind him, sort of put him in his place, he reminds him that all is not lost. Look, I'm still here. I'm still God. I'm still powerful and in control. And here's what's going to happen next. Again, he talks about Haziel and Jehu and Elisha, these names that um, you don't really need to remember for now. Right? Just because it didn't go exactly according to Elijah's plan doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan. And the same goes for you. Okay, just because life doesn't go exactly the way that you want it to go, or just because your life doesn't go exactly the way that you planned it or thought it would go, doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan. He does. And as it's written in the book of Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future, right, and a hope. God's people get depressed. Let's wrap this up, okay? God's people get depressed. And we get depressed for a variety of reasons. We need to see depression for what it is. Okay, it is a multifaceted problem requiring a multifaceted solution. We also need to see that depression does not disqualify you from God's grace, nor does it disqualify you from his service. Right? Depression does not disqualify you from God's grace, and it doesn't disqualify you from his service. God works in and through the lives of depressed people. God loves us enough to meet us where we're at, at the bottom of the pit, in the midst of our failures, in the darkest, of, uh, the darkest dark of our depression. He loves us enough to meet us where we are at. And God loves us enough not to leave us there. He comes in comfort. He comes in counsel. 
and he comes in control. For I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare, not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. Let's pray.